from the Society for Nautical Research in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone, I hope you have enjoyed the launch of our Great Sea Fight series just before Christmas, which has begun with three episodes on the Battle of the River Plate of 1939. We've more of this coming your way and we'll be publishing another on the Battle of Cape St Vincent of 1797 in February. Before we play this week's interview, it's time to briefly revisit those poor sailors of the whaler Swan to follow their story as they are trapped in the ice off the west coast of Greenland as the December of 1836 turns to the new year of 1837. Life in the days after Christmas has been precarious and the temperature is astonishingly cold. Wednesday, 28th December. A light breeze from the west-northwest the forepart of this day. Middle part declining winds from the southeast. AM. PM heavy gales from the south. The ship driving inshore at the rate of two knots. At eight, gales increased. Got the bread on deck. A reef of bergs lying about 19 miles to leeward, all hands engaged in putting a few clothes together, ready for throwing on the ice. At 12, it providentially fell to quite moderate and lighter weather. One of the bergs to be seen on the starboard bow about two miles from us. Latitude by observation, 72 degrees, 35 minutes north. The land seen this day, distance 25 or 30 miles. Sunday the 1st. Light, airy winds the whole of the day. Divine service performed as usual in between decks. This day, average of thermometer 30 degrees below zero. A 250-gallon shake cut up for fuel. Modern research into the exact location in which the swan was trapped show us that the temperature today is on average 10 degrees warmer than it was in the new year of 1837. Crucial information for scientists mapping Arctic climate change over the past two centuries. Happy New Year, everyone. This week, I am talking to Dr. Miranda Kaufman, a historian who specialises in black history. You may well have seen her on TV or at history festivals and public lectures all over the country. I'd urge you to listen to her speak live. She's absolutely fantastic. Today, we're interested in the research that led to her prize winning book, Black Tudors, The Untold Story and in particular to her discovery of the lives of numerous Africans living in England and Scotland's port towns during the 16th and 17th centuries. She explains how they arrived in Britain, what occupations and relationships they found in the ports, and how they were treated by the church, the law courts and the other inhabitants. I very much enjoy talking to her and I hope you enjoy listening as much. Here she is. Hi, Miranda. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk to me today. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Yeah, thanks. Good. Well, tell us a bit about how you got into your subject of research. I'm always fascinated in the, the history of historians to see how people got into what they do. Well, my mind wandered in a lecture. Um, so when I was uh, my last year at Oxford as an undergraduate, I was in a sort of fairly dull lecture about early modern trade and suddenly the lecturer mentioned that the Tudors had started trading to Africa in the middle of the 16th century. And I was really surprised because the only thing I'd ever been taught about trade with Africa was the trade in enslaved Africans in the 18th century on, around. And uh, so 
uh, so I, you know, I was really surprised and I had to find out more and I rushed to the library and started reading and, uh, you know, and then quite quickly, I think in Peter Fryer's Staying Power, I found reference to um, some documents from Elizabeth I's Privy Council, where they said that, you know, quote, great numbers of Negars and Blackamoors have arrived in this realm since your majesty's wars with the King of Spain. And, you know, that was an even bigger surprise. So... Um, I thought, well, you know, if these gov high level government papers are saying that there are large numbers of Africans here, then they must have left some trace in the large amount of documentation we have for the early modern period. Uh, so I began my search and, you know, as as always stood on the shoulders of giants. And it did turn out that there were some people who've been researching this for a long time. Uh, and uh, so, you know, people like Marika Sherwood and Kathy Chater, you know, helped me out and sent me some references and from there I, I went on and ended up finding um, references to over 360 Afro people of African origin or descent in Britain between 1500 and 1640. It's fascinating the way you, you tell that story because I think the way to get into history as a, as a historian, now there are lots of students going to be listening to this podcast, is you've got to find a gap in your own knowledge first and you go, wow, that's interesting, I want to know what's going on there. And you go into that gap and then you can find other places that actually haven't been written about. But it's very unusual, I think, to go go into any area of history to find out that nothing's been done about it. Part of uh, what I love about history is just how creative and how big the field is. And I don't think people really recognise or appreciate that. And then you've got to find your own your own little bit, your own little bit that you're actually going to, to investigate. What was your first little bit that you actually wanted to get to the bottom of? Um, well, I think... I think I just wanted to find out how many there were and where they were. I mean, I suppose the big question in my mind that kind of came up quite quickly was, you know, we wanted to, I wanted to know how they were perceived and, and whether they were enslaved. I think a lot of people assumed they were enslaved um, throughout kind of Western history. And increasingly, I found evidence that they weren't in England in this period. Yeah. Uh, it particularly works with, with ships, doesn't it? Because when you think about Africans on board Tudor or Stuart ships, you might immediately think of those who had been enslaved by Tudor seafarers like John Hawkins. But that's that's clearly not the full picture. Yeah, I mean, I found that um, people people who've written histories of, um, of the slave trade, as it's usually called, but... Um, I'm trying my best to call it, you know, trafficking in, in enslaved Africans, which is a bit more of a mouthful, but I think is important in terms of the change of emphasis of sort of putting personhood back into uh, these individuals who were not just a commodity called a slave. Um, and um, I think I think histories of that um, abominable trade, as I'm sure someone later called it, um, was uh, sort of started with John Hawkins in the 1560s, but then wrote as if English trade just sort of, you know, exponentially increased from that point. Uh, whereas actually, uh, when I dug into it, I found that there was a gap of almost 70 years um, between, I think it might be exactly, anyway, bet between um, Hawkins's last voyage that ends in disaster in 1569 and the first ship that I found was arriving in Barbados with a cargo in 1641. Uh, and there's some interesting sort of certainly when we're talking about maritime history, there's an interesting period in between. Uh, so when I say that, I mean, I'm talking about uh, what becomes known as the triangular trade of setting off from England, going to Africa and then going to sell in the English colonies. I mean, we have to remember that for a lot of this in between period, England didn't have any colonies and Hawkins was actually selling to the Spanish colonies. Yeah. 
Uh, and that's why it didn't work out for him in the end, because the Spanish saw him as an interloper and didn't want him getting involved. Um, I think, again, when we when we talk about the trade of in, in enslaved Africans, we quite often you know, have this sort of jingoistic almost assumption that it was dominated by Britain throughout history, whereas um, for the majority, for the whole of the 16th century, it was the Spanish and the Portuguese who were um, doing this stuff. Um, So, yeah, so there was this gap, but there's this interesting period in between where you see uh, privateers capturing enslaved Africans from Spanish and Portuguese ships in much smaller numbers than, than were later transported by British ships uh, and taking them to sort of these emerging colonies. And uh, last year was the 400th anniversary of 1619, which is when the first Africans arrived in Virginia. And uh, that those Africans were captured by privateers from a Portuguese ship that was coming from Angola. Um, and people still are still debating what their exact status was when they arrived in Virginia. But certainly when they left Angola, they were enslaved by the Portuguese. Yeah. So it's not just about um, establishing this this trade trafficking in enslaved Africans. It's also uh, the the British actually having their own um, locations in the West Indies, which is such an important part of that. And that's um, all to do with 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 uh, generations of seafarers going out there and exploring and mapping and charting the West Indies to find out what on earth is there. Because, you know, knowledge of that whole geography was so important to being able to establish the colonies. Yeah. Um, what about the sources? How do you actually get to grips with this? Um, well, a lot of the a lot of the references to Africans in England um, are coming from parish registers, so um, records of baptisms, but, um, marriages, and burials, um, and that that gives you a lot of the bulk of of knowing where they where they were living, um, and also gives you an interesting insight into. Uh, their levels of acceptance into Tudor society um, because we find them intermarrying. You find children born to um, mixed couples, uh, which again is something that surprises people now when I talk about it. Um, some people think well, that's a very modern phenomenon, but it's not. Um, and uh, but, but you don't always get a lot of meat on the bones with those records. It can often be a, a sort of one-liner with very little information about the individuals. So uh, I think, um, but you know, they appear in household accounts um, of uh, aristocratic and noble households and royal households where there are records of them being paid wages or clothes um, or shoes being bought for them or them being paid rewards. So again, their labour is being compensated in the same way that um, English uh, labour was. So they're being paid wages, which is another indicator of freedom. Uh, and then I think, you know, the meatiest uh, evidence com- comes from um, from court cases. So, you know, with with the maritime angle, the High Court of Admiralty records um, come up with some interesting material. And I think probably would come up with a lot more um, if anybody actually went through and transcribed the whole thing, because there's it, it's one of the really worst catalogued uh, set of records at the National Archives. Um, I know there's a there's a project called Maritime Lives, I think. No, Marine Lives, uh, where they have begun kind of crowdsourcing, transcribing it. But I think they started in the 1650s and I wish they'd started 100 years <laughs> But <laughs> But, you know, there, there, is, there is a lot, I think, still to be tapped there. But, you know, that's where we find the story of Jacques Francis, the uh, salvage diver who worked um, on the wreck of the Mary Rose. 
um but also lot, lot a few other stories as well um or uh, you know like these pirates um anyway uh, i go yeah. into the pirate pirate slash privateering is a fine line but you know privateering was definitely one of the ways that africans came came to england in this period because like i said uh you know they're capturing uh the english privateers are capturing um spanish and portuguese ships uh and before there are english colonies like virginia and barbados and bermuda to take them to they're bringing them back to England um they're more interested in the sugar on board or you know other commodities but uh they, they but these Africans do end up coming back to England um it's interesting what you were saying about the difficulty of actually accessing some archives and how sometimes research is 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 kind of laid on a plate for you and it's easy and sometimes it's not um I particularly was working in the, the National Archives when I was researching for my PhD and if you look at letters Nate from the Admiralty in the 18th century they're all uh, beautifully ordered so if you want to uh, read a letter by Nelson and you find the box of N uh, written by them in, in whenever 1803 uh, but then you go back through time and there were, I came across I was writing about Benbow in the six, late 1600s and there are just boxes and boxes and boxes of letters still in their envelopes and still on catalogue and it takes four times as long to actually get to grips with anything so I'm, I'm I admire your perseverance in your work I'm particularly interested in the household accounts I don't know anything about that at all what what is a household account and where do you find them um, well, taking it from the top, you have uh, the royal household accounts. So, um, you know, accountancy is not a new thing. The king or the earl of so-and-so want to know where, where, what money is being spent. And they have um, a, uh, I don't know, they have officials who, whose job it is to write down exactly how much is being spent on everything in the household from, you know, the food that they're buying to the wages of the servants to rewards given to people or, uh, you know, clothing bought for, to, for a funeral for the entire household or for um, a celebration. Um, and that's where you find like the records of John Blank, the Tudor court trumpeter who played for Henry VII and Henry VIII. He played at Henry VII's funeral and Henry VIII's coronation. And we have the records of the red clothes that were bought for him, or rather scarlet, which was a higher level of clothing. Um, Even redder red. <laughs> yeah, well, it was more luxurious fabric. And uh, uh, so he got scarlet clothing for the coronation and black clothing for the funeral. Uh, but you also have his wage slips in there as well. Do we know um, where he was from? Nope. <laughs> I mean, as you were saying, you know, Tudor geography wasn't brilliant. So they weren't they weren't that great at, at kind of knowing where people came from, especially because um, the terminology they use to describe Africans is quite vague. So sort of the most common term I found was uh, blackamoor. And that sort of pretty much leaves you none the wiser as to where, where they're from. John Blank is called the Black Trumpet. Um, but I mean, the only I mean, the only kind of hint that we have is that in the Westminster tournament role where he is portrayed, he's portrayed wearing a, a turban. So oh. so that kind of may be a slight clue. But on the other hand, it might not because Henry VIII loved uh, dressing up in Turkish fashion, as he called it. Um, so it's really yeah, it doesn't really leave us much the no. wiser but what we I mean what we can do to get, estimate where where these Africans were coming from is to look at the broader patterns of travel around the Atlantic world at the time so so we know that we know where you know that the Africans the Africans that the Spanish and Portuguese were bringing both to Spain and Portugal and across the Atlantic uh, came, you know came from parts of West Africa 
um, specifically Senegambia, um, which is the area between the Senegal and Gambia rivers. So, so, so we we can kind of make that broader, come to that broader conclusion that way. And are there voyage accounts from ships actually making these voyages as well that you can get into? Yeah. So, so yeah, that's another. I mean, I haven't listed all the sources. Um. So that's that's another one. I think. Yeah. So mostly, you know, and this is where the Hacklet Society comes in handy um, with a lot of the sort of printed, edited uh, voyage accounts that that they've produced over the years. Uh, And um, there are, you know, there's there's wonderful titles like The Troublesome Voyage of Edward Fenton, (laughs) uh, which was very troublesome. (laughs) Uh, And and at the same time, you've got a separate diary of Richard Maddox, uh, who was the chaplain on the voyage. So you get his perspective of that one as well. Uh, And that that's quite interesting because they uh, pick up some Africans in Guinea um, to replace crew members that have died because um, they need extra hands on deck. Uh, but I think the most detailed voyage accounts that we have are obviously of Francis Drake's endeavours. Yep. Um, so that's where we get a lot of information about the life of Diego, ah. who um, meets Drake in Panama in the 1570s, early 1570s, and then ends up coming back to Plymouth with him, living there for four years, and then going on the circumnavigation voyage with him, uh, which he unfortunately di- dies on eventually um, in Indonesia. But um, that's quite an amazing story. And you, you have, you know, Sir Francis Drake revived is where you get the details of the Panama experience where you learn that, um, we learn that Diego was actually brokered this alliance between Drake and the Panama Maroons, uh, which is quite quite the story. I think traditionally people tell the story as if Drake um, captured all this treasure all by himself, but actually it becomes clear that the English were entirely dependent on a larger number of Maroons who were their guides and had been stealing gold from the Spaniards for years. Yes, Um, they knew exactly what they were doing and how to to go about it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, and so with, I mean, with the, again, with sort of the circumnavigation voyage, uh, because that's something that people have been interested in for a long time. The sources are a bit more available. Um, there's a lot of printed versions. So you've got the English voyage accounts, but you've also got the Spanish um, records because once he starts raiding um, ports and ships um, on the um, Pacific coast of South America, uh, he, you know, the, the Spaniards, uh, the Spaniards start writing back to Madrid saying, you know. Drake is attacking. This is bad news, um, and and with lots of details. And then they pick up some of the people that he captures, and then drops off again, and like sub, you know submit them to quite heavy inquisitions. So we've got all of that as well, which is really interesting. Yeah. Um, so I, I suppose there's a... a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. 
Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Do you get a sense that there's so much more to be done within this field? I mean, are there Spanish and Portuguese scholars working on their own accounts as well? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, there's definitely more to be done. And I think it would be really interesting to match up uh, the material you find in the English records with with more of the Spanish and Portuguese ones that, unfortunately, I don't have the language skills to really dig into. Yet, um... Miranda, yet. (laughs) 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 No, I think think that ship has sailed. Yeah, really, the 16th century Portuguese, I'd struggle with that. I'd struggle with that as well. Um, While we're talking about Drake... um... It, it, he he is fascinating as well, and I'm 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 particularly interested in the material culture that survives uh, linked with Drake. And of course, there's the Drake Jewel, which is a, which is a magnificent thing. It was a gift given to him by Queen Elizabeth uh, around 1588, perhaps a couple of years before. Um, and that's got a, a little story to tell us about uh, Africans in Tudor in the Tudor world as well. Well, it has a huge bust of an African man right in the centre of it. So um, I think people have uh, overlooked um, the significance of that in the context of of the histories that I've looked at because the African bust is sort of superimposed on a white white person's bust. not sure it's not clear really whether it's male or female that figure but but i think that that was a symbol of this alliance between drake and the panama maroons um which had been central to his success and although it didn't actually um you know cause success again for the english uh, on the scale that it did in 1573 the, the the English still obsess about it for years later and it's constantly in their plans when they're, you know, and it makes logical sense, you know, if you're trying to attack the Spanish, if you can get um, the Maroons or even the, insla- the enslaved Africans in those ports uh, to turn against the Spaniards and be on your side, you know, that that's a, a good tactic. Uh, and it's still in there when they're planning, uh, you know, the disastrous Western design under Cromwell in the in the 1650s. Uh, they're still saying, oh, and we're going to get the the Africans to turn against the Spaniards and fight on our side. But uh, it doesn't it doesn't ha- it has mixed results. Yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of life in port towns, I think this is particularly interesting. I mean, you've got, obviously got a, a we're lucky in that our, our capital cities a port town. So there must be so much uh, material you can get into from uh, from London, but also also other port towns around the country. I wondered if you'd talk a little about about um, studying the, their lives in these port towns. Yes, yeah, so about a third of the references I found overall were were in London, uh, and quite a few were in kind of East London, like St Botolph's Old Gate uh, Parish and St Olive Hart Street, which are you know close to the river. Um, but uh, I, I, there were also I also found records of of Africans living in Southampton, Plymouth, uh, Bristol, uh, 
one at least a couple in Dover, one in Hull, mm. uh, and uh, so so clearly, um, you know, and, and the Africans arrived by ship into ports, and so it makes sense that that they stayed there. But also there there are a number of of Africans who were working on ships as waged sailors. Um, like uh, John Anthony, um, who, who a mariner of Dover, um, who who shows up in the rec- in the uh, state papers actually, uh, petitioning for his wages to be paid because they're o- long overdue, which was you know normal for sailors. Um, it wasn't you know specific to him being of African origin, and he does eventually get paid with six months' interest to cover um, well, the period. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We cover the period where he was going without them. So. And again, and he he was actually involved in a voyage to Virginia in 1619, the same year that these enslaved Africans uh, are brought there from Angola. And I was really disappointed when I dug into it um, close more closely and realised that although they'd set off with plans to go to Virginia, they never made it, and they kind of turned back at Bermuda, having supposedly um, captured uh, traded for. Um, tobacco uh, at Bermuda, you know, legally with a Spanish ship, but later on the Spaniards claim that it was stolen from them. Yeah. So that that again, like, generates a lot of uh, court materials, which is which is brilliant. Le- legal cases. I would I would add that 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 um, when Africans appear in um, legal court case records, they're always witnesses rather than uh, in the dock themselves, which is interesting. Ah, as well. Yeah, yeah, but everything's beautifully transcribed. It's it's the, the the beauty of court records. I think you can get so much material in there, and no, not the case. <laughs> ah. No, <laughs> no, not 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 in the sixteenth century. No, <laughs> was it a bit more hit and miss? Uh, well, it all depends on the handwriting of the clerk who's writing it down. Yeah. But at least, I mean, you do get twice the chance of reading the words because you get the uh, interrogatories and then the depositions. So you can see the questions that the witness has been asked and then read their answers. So so you, you at least get a double chance to figure out what the key words are. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's, it's hit and miss. Yeah. Um, it's it's such an exciting area of research because it provokes uh, provokes so many questions about the lives of these people, about their status, about their experiences of maritime time life. How have you come got to grips with this sort of the, the next stage? Once you've identified that someone was there, how do you then kind of move on and try and put flesh to the bones of the story? Well, it's difficult. <laughs> there are a lot of gaps and I think inevitably we're not going to find out as much about their experience as we would like, especially because there aren't any first-hand accounts written by the person. Um, but so it is a bit doing a jigsaw puzzle and knowing that a few of the pe- quite a few of the pieces are going to be missing. Um, but I mean, I think that um, when I was writing my book, I uh, I tried to recreate um, the context of their lives as well. So to think about what it was like to be a sailor in general in the period so that to give you a kind of sense of of that life or, you know, another amazing story is a prince from River Sestos in modern day Liberia who is brought back to London by a merchant called John Davies, um, baptised in London uh, in, uh, in, uh, in the parish of St Mildred Poultry, which is right in the centre of modern day London near, well, in the city uh, near Bank. 
uh, and uh, and then lives in London for a couple of years, learns English, and then goes home and acts as a sort of trade factor as an interpreter uh, whenever English ships call at at the port. Um, again with mixed success, but. Uh, although there isn't that much information about him personally, uh, we have a a parish and it's sort of extended parish register entry describing his baptism. And then I found a letter from an East India Company merchant who encounters him on the coast of Liberia several years later that I was able to sort of match that up and learn more about what happened to him next. But um, in order to try and understand more about who he was, um, I, I read, you know, quite a bit about that area of the African coast in that period and um, mostly drawing on later later accounts um, like a, of this Frenchman called Jean Bar- Barbeau, who, um, you know, who visited, I don't know, probably about 60 years later. But also I put his life in the context of other African um, nobles who, who you know, high standing, high status Africans who visited London in the same way and also learnt English and went back. So, uh, yeah, it was a sort of part of a bigger phenomenon. Yeah, wonderful. Well, um, it's been very nice talking to you. Thank you for giving me your time. Uh, how would people find out more? Tell us about your book. Um, it's called Black Tudors: The Untold Story. Available in all good bookshops. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, these these days, um, you know, you can order things online from your local bookshop and even get it delivered to your home. So there's no excuse for using the A word. Um, <laughs> but you know, if you want more in more broadly, uh, my website is www.mirandakaufman.com, or you can contact me on Twitter at, at @mirandakaufman. Uh, I enjoy talking to people there. Well, uh, thank you very much for your time. I've really enjoyed talking to you. We've had lots of interesting contributions to the Society for Nautical Research's free forum over the festive period, with a particularly good one sent to us from Rémi Carado in Canada. Hello, I am from Canada, near Ottawa, and I'm looking for information about a portrait that I found in a pile of garbage on the side of a road near a cottage by the Gatineau River in Quebec. I did not pay attention to it when I found the painting until now when I started to search for the name inscribed on a label on the back. Please see the attached images and those are all uploaded now so do check them out. The label said Captain Josiah Nisbet RN taken at the age of three years in the Isle of Nevis WI. I assume that RN means Royal Navy and WI means West Indies. I think you're correct there Remy. Is there a possible connection with Josiah Nisbet, 1780 to 1830, the son of Dr. Josiah Nisbet, 1747 to 1781, and Francis, known as Fanny Woolwood, 1758 to 1831, who married Horatio Nelson in 1787? Dr. Nisbet died on October the 5th, 1871, after moving with his family from the Isle of Nevis to England. Francis returned to Nevis shortly after and lived at the house of her uncle, John Richardson Herbert, before she met Nelson, around 1784. The label said taken at the age of three years in the Isle of Nevis, which seems to be accurate given the age of the painting and the canvas, and provides a date circa 1783. Any additional information is welcome. Thank you very much indeed for getting in touch, Remy. And everyone, do please check out the post and the responses to that. And here is another one from Ian Trackman. 
I'm trying to find the birth date of Dido Bell, the mixed race daughter of John Lindsay, commanding officer of HMS Trent between 1759 and 1763, and Maria Bell, a slave. Almost nothing is known of Dido's early life. She was baptised in London in 1766 when the church record states that she was aged five years. Shortly afterwards, she was taken into care by Lord and Lady Mansfield at Kenwood House, their country home in North London. The Kenwood household accounts show regular payments to Dido on her birthday by Lord M's order. Unfortunately, there is no specific payment date. However, in 1792, the payment appears between two dated entries for the 3rd and the 5th of July. So, assuming that Dido's birthday was correctly known at the time, it can be deduced as 3rd, 4th or 5th of July 1761. To corroborate this, I'm now trying to establish from naval records whether, and if so where, she could have been conceived about nine months earlier, that is in the spring of 1760. I've located the log of HMS Trent at the National Maritime Museum from which it appears that Lieutenant, later Captain and Admiral Lindsay, was in or near Charlestown, present-day Charleston, South Carolina. However, I'm having difficulty reading the handwriting and abbreviations in the log and would appreciate assistance from an expert. Well, you've come for the right place in and I'm delighted to say there's all been all sorts of discussion on the forum from as many experts uh, as you could possibly want and um, we are getting closer to solving this fascinating problem. But that's it for the end of this week. I very much hope that you've enjoyed yourselves. Please do follow us on social media. Uh, you can follow the Society for Nautical Research at Nautical History on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook. The Mariner's Mirror has got its own Instagram page and YouTube channel. And there's going to be some fascinating material being posted on both in the coming weeks. What else can you do? Well, please do join the Society for Nautical Research. You can find us at snr.org.uk and your subscription fee will go towards publishing the most important naval and maritime history and to preserving the world's maritime heritage. Thank you very much indeed for listening.